Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, uh, and then I will read, through, uh, read for you Mark 6, 30 to 32. But Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, and if you don't have your Bible, as always, the words are on the screen, but let us read uh, this scripture really quickly, and then we'll pray, and then we'll just kind of jump right in. Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, and then Mark chapter 6, verses 30 and 32. And Patrick, you don't have to worry about the Mark uh, text, I'll just read it. But the news about him, Jesus, was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 32. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And so they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and jump right in uh, to our topic of the day. Father, would you speak to us? And I feel like as we've come out of Revelation into the new world that you've declared in John through the birth, I mean through the resurrection of Jesus that indeed we're entering into a space where we need to navigate and understand how best to live in this new world. The things that I think are, are, are making it harder, are making it more difficult for us to indeed live into the life that you've prescribed for us, a life that is unlike any other. So I pray that in this time we would indeed be able to give you all of our attention, that you would speak clearly to us, lovingly to us, and that we would hear your voice amongst the many and may your voice be the only one that is loud and clear in this place. And may all other voices fade off into the distance so that we can hear you and hearing you know you and in knowing you have life and life to the full, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you know me a little bit, you know that I love to cook. I love food, I think, more than most things in life. And because I love to cook and I'm really good at it, apparently, one thing that I love to do is I love to go grocery shopping. My house is unlike any other house, I think, uh, around in that I do all the grocery shopping. I don't let Christina go to the grocery store because she'll spend $150 and we'll go into the fridge and I'll be like, there's nothing here and I don't know what you spent it on. Uh, and so I don't really trust her to go grocery shopping. So I do the grocery shopping on Mondays on my day off. I take all the kids and actually our family does this weird thing where we all, all five of us, love to go to the grocery store and buy all of our weekly groceries. And of all the grocery stores I love, H-E-B the most, which is the best store in my opinion. But I love it because... I love to stroll up and down every aisle, and we are, uh, we're really weird. We literally go up and down every single aisle in the grocery store, except for the candy and the chip aisle, because then we'll have to, uh, the Mason and Connor and Carol, they'll see you and they'll be like, oh, I want it. So we skip those aisles, but every other aisle we go that contains food. And I love it because as I see it, I'll see the veggies, and I'll see the meat, and I'll see the fruit. And as I see all the different options, ideas start popping in my mind about all the different and wonderful things that I can make. Ooh, I can make this with that. Ooh, I can make this with that. And all the ideas about what we might eat in the week start to kind of flood my brain. I love it. It's this creative kind of thing that I love to do. It gives me so much energy. And the options of all the things that I can make are just really, like, in some ways, endless. And it's really, really awesome. But as much as I love grocery shopping, I also hate it with a passion at times, especially on certain days, like Friday afternoons, Saturday mornings, where it's just so many freaking people that it's literally hard to navigate a cart down the aisle because there's just people everywhere. 
And then the worst is when I need something to like, I just, we ran out of eggs or we didn't plan well, we ran out of milk or whatever. And I need to go grab one or two or three things, but I got to navigate through this entire ginormous store just to get one thing. And of course, I have to navigate through all the different people and try to get it. I absolutely hate it. My kids love Costco on a Saturday. I hate it because there's so many people and there's like a zoo and I just do not like it. And the worst thing that I ever have to do at a grocery store is when I have to buy something that I usually do not buy. For instance, there was this one time, and I'll, I'll give you a secret. Maybe you might know this about me already, but I love me a good bubble bath. It is awesome. It is one of the most restful things and relaxing things ever, although I don't fit into my bathtub and my knees are sticking out everywhere and it's really awkward placement, but I love bubble baths. And so normally, Christina will go to like Walmart or whatever and get me some bubble bath, or you know, I have friends uh, and they'll gift me like bubble stuff because they know that I love taking bath. But this one time, we ran out and I really wanted to take a bubble bath. And so I went to, this, I went to HEB and I was going to the thing and I went into that part of the uh, store that I never go down, which is like the health and beauty section. And to find the bubble bath, I had to go down every aisle to try to find it. And I finally got to the section on bubble bath. So I got really excited going like, I'm, I'm picturing the bubble bath in my mind. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. But as I get there, I realized, and I counted, there are 45 different bubble baths in this one section. And then my mind went nuts. So then I was like, holy crap, there's so many choices. What do I, I, which one do I pick? So then of course, me being me, me being the nerd, I'm like reading each and every single one. I'm taking it out, reading the thing. And I, like, one time I put it in, and then as I put it in, I turned and I saw another one. I was like, I think that's better. So I took it out and then put it in there. And so all these like, how many, how about you, like older people like walking by, they, they do the healthcare stuff and they're looking at me like a crazy man. So I'm sitting there reading every single thing. And I'm looking at me like, well, this is $4.32 and it gives me 48 ounces, but this is $5.32 and it gives me 60. I was like, so I'm doing the math. I'm pulling on my phone, doing all the calculations. And it took me 20 minutes to pick a stupid bubble bath. Now I really like it. And I went and used it and I enjoyed it a lot. But it took me 20 minutes just to pick a stupid bubble bath. Now, did you know, in 1960, your average grocery store held 9,000 unique products, okay? 9,000, seems like a lot, okay? But today, the average grocery store, and so not H-E-B, because H-E-B is an average, it's way better than average, but your average grocery store holds anywhere up to 40,000 thousand unique products. That's a 31,000 product jump if you're doing the math, okay? And so the bigger ones, like our HEBs, our HEB pluses, or whatever the case might be, they hold anywhere between 60 to 75,000 unique products. But here's the thing. You can't fit 70,000 products into a shopping cart or two. And most, the average person or the average family, it is estimated, needs only 150 items for their needs to be satisfied in any one given week. Which means, if you're doing the math, the grocery store holds an excess, a surplus of 39,850 items, or worse, 59,850 items than we need. Now you might be thinking, okay, pastor, thanks for the diatribe on your grocery store loving thing, but what is the point? The point is this. We as Americans living in North America and all the developed countries in the world particularly, we have a problem. And the problem is that we simply have too many choices, too many things to choose from. Now you might say, Pastor, I don't see anything wrong with that, quite frankly, because I love me some choices. I love having lots of different choices. You actually don't want to be stuck not having any choices. You want to have lots of options, right? The more options, the better. But I want to ask you, is it really good to have this many options? 
Most neuroscientists, the ones that study your brain, agree that having too much information and too many choices is coming at a cost. Because our days, and you can think about it, our days is a never-ending stream. From the moment you wake up to the moment your eyes shut and you're actually asleep, a never-ending stream of choices of what to eat, what to do, how to do it, where to do it, you know, when to do it, how much, whatever, all this stuff. And so your day is a constant struggle to try to figure out something from moment to moment. And then it gets worse because you might actually figure out what to do in a certain moment. But then the next thing that happens, you got to figure out then what to do in that moment. For instance, Koreans are notorious for loitering. I am the pastor also of RK, and we have Lindsay sitting in the back there. But one thing that happens after like a Friday night gathering or whatever is they generally go out, sign to the parking lot, and they try to figure out what is it that they want to do. Where is it that they want to eat? You know how on average how long it takes? Literally 25 minutes to figure out where to eat. So yeah, you're like, you know what, what are we going to do today? Oh, let's go eat. Okay, cool. Where? What cuisine? What area? What price range? Then you have to check off each and every single one of those things, figuring out what all those categories are. And by the time you're done, it's 30 minutes late, and you're probably way, either way too starving, or you're way too frustrated, or whatever the case might be. Or maybe let's just say you're like, you know what, today for our activity, we want to go watch something. Even if you say, you know what, I want to watch something, then you've got to figure out on what network or what type of thing. Netflix, Amazon Video, Hulu, whatever the case might be, YouTube, illegal streaming, whatever it is that we're doing. Yeah, I know. I know all of you illegal stream stuff. Don't pretend like you don't. And then once you figure out what, then you've got to figure out what that platform has that the other one doesn't. Then all you've got to have to coagulate all of your choices and try to figure out one, and it's just a mess all the time. We have to make so many decisions that even the decisions that should be very fun and exciting, like what to do on a vacation or what to eat at a restaurant when you go there, become stressful and anxiety-filled work because you and I have too many choices and do not, how, do not know how to make a choice. Oz Guinness, a famous theologian, says this in his book. He says, Life is now a supermarket or a smorgasbord of endless array of options. Whether the choice is the question of gender, marriage, hobby, vacation, lifestyle, worldview, religion, career, major, family, church, and many others on the list, there is something for everybody, for every taste, for every age, for every sex, for every class, for every interest. Take your pick. Mix your own. Do your thing. We've reached a stage, therefore, where what matters is no longer good choice or right choice, but simply that you have choice. Freedom simply is having choice, and to be modern or postmodern is to be addicted to choice and change, which thereby choice and change have become the very essence of life. Basically, what he's saying is with all the information that you and I have, we are experiencing overload. Our brains, our hearts, our souls can't simply handle all the things that you have to do, which is why your generation, more than any other generation in the history of the world, simply do not know how to focus and pay attention. They were this close to eliminating the SAT. So many of you got really happy all of a sudden. But you know why? Because they figured out that your attention span is so minute and small that the SAT no longer was a measure of how good and smart and prepared you were. That you couldn't sit through a three-hour test, and so most people weren't doing as well on the SATs as they should, so they almost got rid of it. And in part, the reason why they took out the writing section. And now it's back to a 1600 scale instead of 24. You have, a, you have an issue 
You can't pay attention. And because you can't pay attention, then you can't understand and pay attention to the most important things. And even worse, you can't make decisions about what's important and what's, what's most critical to live your life well. So even if you wanted to live life well, the thing is that you don't know how to make choices for the best thing so that you can live life well. You're handicapped, essentially. Dallas Willard, he says this. He says, the mantle of intellectual meaningless, right, which is to say we have so much information that all of it is just meaningless. It shrouds and clouds every aspect of our common life. Events, things, and information, it floods over us. It overwhelms us. It disorients us with threats and possibilities that we, for the most part, have no idea what to do about. See, here's the situation. You have so many choices, so many different options, all this stuff floating around you. Some of it is threatening to you. Some of it is good for you. And you have to kind of make sense of all of it. But because you have so much of it, you actually get anxious, fearful, and disoriented by the threats of things and by the possibility of things, even though you have no idea what the threat and the possibilities are actually are because your brain is so overloaded, you actually can't make sense of anything. See, we love choices, and we have so many of them that we love to change our mind. And because of all of these things, what ends up happening is that you and I have commitment issues. And because you and I can't commit to anything, therefore there's no continuity or stability. You can't make a decision, you won't make a decision, and therefore you can't and you won't stick to anything. And so what your life is, essentially, is an ongoing cycle of just change and disorientation again and again and again and again. I love this stat, but people in the generation that was born from the 1920s to the 1950s, the average person then had an average expectation of having 1.1 careers, which means if you were a farmer, you were a farmer. If you were an engineer, you were an engineer. If you were a doctor, you were an a doctor. The generation from 1950 to 1980, which is some of the adults in the back here, their generation, the average number of careers a person would hold in North America is up to 1.9. So most of them would start off as one and maybe switch to one other. We have a couple of people like Jay over there has been with the same company, BP, for 30 years. It just doesn't happen anymore. But now our generation, actually not even your generation, yeah, your generation for most of you, the millennials from 1980 to 2000-ish, 2010, depending on how long you take it, the average career expectancy, you know how many careers that you and I are expected to have in our lifetime? You want to guess the number? Over four. Which means that if you're studying to be a doctor, most likely they average, they, they guesstimate that you will go from a doctor to a dentist to a whatever to a whatever and by the time you're done you would have had five careers not five jobs five careers too many choices don't know how to choose which, what's best and because you don't know how to choose you can't commit and because you can't commit all you do is change and all you're doing is changing 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 which means the same thing goes for careers as for marriages and everything in between now, think about what all of this means for our faith, right? For our understanding of who Jesus is and following Jesus with all of our lives for the rest of it into eternity. Because our minds and our hearts and our souls are so cluttered and clouded, how is it that anyone is actually going to realize that Jesus is the best choice? How do you and I realize that Jesus is the best choice amongst all the bajillion choices out there? You can't. You're like literally handicapped to not be able to. And even if you were to see that Jesus is the best choice, the question we got to ask is, for how long? 
Because you're drowning in the sea of choices under the waves of change. It's why for so many of you who go to retreats and do this church thing again and again, the thing that you worry about is this thing called spiritual high, right? Which is another way of saying like basically in that moment, Jesus was the choice of the thing. It's the flavor of the day, essentially. And that's it. A spiritual high is that Jesus is the flavor of the day. It's the outfit of the day. It's the God of the day. It's the religion of the day. Whatever of the day you want to call, that's what spiritual highs are, and that's why it, it, just, it, it just plagues us again and again and again. But it's nothing more than maybe that. So this is the background to which all of you live in today's world. And so for the next little while, I want to take seriously that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life which also means that he's saying, I am the way to the truth and to the life. He's the way. Which means that we should study how Jesus lives to maybe figure out how it is that we should live to have the best kind of life. I think what we find as we study Jesus' life a little bit is that the critical way to freedom, especially for your generation and mine and on beyond, is that we have to have two things that we now more than ever do not have. And so the way to find freedom is through simplicity and generosity. So for the next little while, we're going to study what it means to have freedom of simplicity and generosity. And so today, the freedom of simply slowing down. Slow down. Okay? Now, there's a psychologist. You might know him by the name of Carl Jung. Okay, so I, I, when I was little, I thought he was Asian because I thought his name was Carl Jung. And I was like, ooh, Korean psychologist. No, no, he's Swedish or whatever it is. He says this. He says, hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. Let me repeat that. Hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. And this is why this quote was startling. It like, caught my attention when I saw it online. Because the way we live is that we have too many choices, and because we have too many choices, we can't make decisions. And because we can't make decisions, and yet we live in a world because you have so many choices, all you want to do is do everything. We have an insatiable, in like unending appetite for stuff. So basically the situation scenario is this. We have too many choices, but you don't know how to make decisions, but there's too many good things that you want. So what we end up doing is you try to cram every last thing into every last minute and second we have, which means that we live our lives in a constant mode of hurry, hurrying to try to fit everything in. So this past Thursday, I hurt my back. And so late, Friday morning, I'm laying in bed going, I need to go see a physical therapist. So I'm calling all the physical therapists around. I'm trying to get an appointment, and finally I get one. Okay? Now I can barely sit. Putting on socks is like the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my entire life. Okay? And I have to be at the appointment at 11 a.m. So I'm sitting there waiting for the thing, and I'm, you know, I've eaten some breakfast and whatever. I'm doing my thing. And then I look at the clock, and it's 10.30. Christina uh, had, and the kids, I think, already left, so I'm, I'm at home by myself. Um, and I'm looking at 10.30. And, and my mind does this. This is what my mind does. It only takes me 10 to 15 minutes to get to the therapist, which means that I only have to leave 10.45 or 10.50. But I don't consider the fact that I'm literally like immobile, and it's going to take me twice, if not three times as long to do everything, including put my shoes on, including get into the car, including get out of the car, including walk up to the stupid office desk and do all those things. But what my mind is doing is saying, I have 15 minutes before I have to leave, and so what can I do in the 15 minutes? What else can I do? What else can I squeeze in in the 15 minutes? 
Never mind the fact that I can barely bend over. I can't even do this. But my mind is racing trying to figure out everything that I can do. Now you might be saying, Pastor, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. When you and I hurry, what it does is it steals the joy and the peace and the love out of everything. And when you're hurrying, what it generally leads to is that you and I are more careless. Why? Because we're hurrying and we're not thinking. And when you and I are careless, then what happens is we we make bad decisions. And when you and I make bad decisions because we're hurrying and we're careless, then the bad decisions uh, generally leads to a mistake. Which means now you've made a mistake because you're hurrying, you're careless, and, you, and you're not thinking. And now that you made a mistake, you have, time, you have to fix it. But guess what? Because you were hurrying, careless, making bad mistakes, making mistakes, you don't have time to fix your mistake. Because you have to get on to the very next thing that you've already had planned on your agenda because you're cramming everything in. And basically what ends up happening is this endless cycle of anxiety, frustration, stress, and overload because you can't do one thing right, therefore you can't do the next thing right, you've already done too many things, and everything just goes haywire all throughout the day. Does it sound like a little bit of the way you live? In the end, you're just on endless repeat of this cycle of exhaustion, stress, anxiety, In the end, your life and my life is just a hot mess. That's all it is. And maybe even this day was like that for you. Right? Woke up, or maybe you slept too late the night before. And remember, today's supposed to be Sabbath. We we emphasize that here. It's supposed to be a day of rest and celebration. But you probably went to sleep the night before thinking, okay, I have to be at church at 11 or 10.45, whenever you wanted to be here, which means it takes me probably 20, 30 minutes to get ready, which means I probably have to wake up. I'm not going to eat today because you know what? I, don't, don't worry about it. I'll be hungry all throughout service, which is going to make me distracted, but you know what? I don't have time for that. i got to sleep because I, I need to squeeze in an extra 15 minutes of this and that before I go to sleep. So I'm going to wake up, but then after I get to church, if I get there early, then I can do my homework for this minute, but I have to go see this person, and after church, i got to go eat at this place and go do this. Oh, but I still have to do my homework and finish that homework assignment. Then i got to go home and I have dinner with my parents, and we're going somewhere after that, so i got to do this. And so your entire day before you you've even gone to sleep, you're stressed out because you're like counting the minutes and you have no time to do anything. How is it that we're supposed to find rest when your day is worn out even before you begin? So what do we do? Well, today we're going to look at this very one thing. I think what you and I need to do in the beginning is to slow down which may seem like pain to you, but slow down. But of course the question is, okay, pastor, how do I slow down? Well, this is when we look at Jesus' life. And this is why I read the passages that we read. Because when we look at his life, I think he intentionally does three things to slow down so that his life can be lived the right way. Okay? And here are the three things that he does. One, Jesus, I think, intentionally slows down by intentionally missing out on things, a.k.a. he stops doing so much. The second thing he does is he, uh, he stops multitasking to single task. And the third thing that he does is he sits and he meditates. Now, before we look into those things, I want to be very clear. I think Jesus knows what it's like to be us. I think he knows very clearly what it's, about, uh, what it's like to be busy and having lots to do. All throughout his life on earth, he was being constantly bombarded by people wanting him to do this and that, wanting this from him, wanting that from him, wanting healing, wanting, uh, wanting love and wanting service and all this kind of stuff. His life is probably more demanding than us because last time I checked, I'm not walking around the streets and having 5,000, 6,000 people crowding around me asking me to do things for them. But that's what his life was like. 
Wherever he went, he was surrounded by people pulling at them, wanting them to teach them and do this. But no matter what, again and again and again, you see Jesus intentionally missing out, single-tasking, and meditating to keep himself from what a theologian says, dying in the frenzy and being enslaved to the demands. Or as one theologian recommended to another pastor, he says, in order to slow down and to live life well, you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So let's look at these three things. Intentionally missing out, single-tasking, and meditating. First, I find it funny that Jesus purposely, all the time, would get away from people and go to a very secluded place to pray and to rest. Jesus, like I said, has lots of things to do, lots of people who wanted things from him, but no matter how many people were grabbing at him, wanting things from him, he would always take time, sneak away even, to get away and to do this. And by doing this, Jesus became the very anti-person of modernity, a.k.a. he became became the person without a smartphone. You have two hashtags that I hate and I love at the same time because I think they're stupid. One is FOMO, fear of missing out, and the second one is TFTI, thanks for the invitation. But the whole idea behind these hashtags is this. I have to be a part of everything, engage in everything, and experience everything all the time, and not just all the time, when it happens. If I don't, then my life is somehow less or inferior or something of the rather. So much to the point where the NFL and Verizon ran a campaign a while ago that they've made a new hashtag, a FOMO F, FOMO, fear of missing out on football. And the whole idea is that if you have Verizon, then you can stream every NFL game on your phone. And it was to the point where people were doing things, barbecuing, going to meetings or whatever, and the entire time they had the phone, so they were streaming all the games. So the idea is you and I should not, cannot, will not miss out on anything that is going. So don't fear out on missing out. Why? Because you will have access to everything in real time. Don't worry, you won't ever not be reachable. You won't ever not be interruptible. You will always have everything at your fingertips at all times, and all of this is supposed to be good. But is it? Well, maybe it depends. What are you missing out on, right? And why are you missing out on the thing that you're missing out on? Now, hopefully, we will agree in here that there are certain things in life that we should miss out on. Certain things that are not good for us, and we should miss out on certain things. But what about the good things, right? We don't want to miss out on the good things, do we? Like, Pastor, why would you say we should miss out on the good things? Well, it depends. Well, let's look at Jesus again. What does Jesus miss out on, and why, right? In all of the scenarios, in both the passages we read and others, you find Jesus is doing really good things. He's healing people really good. He's teaching people really good. He's providing needs for people, but each and every single time, although demand is only increasing and not decreasing at all, although there's so much work to be done, a lot of really great things, miraculous things even, Jesus still goes away. So why? Why would Jesus take time in the middle of doing amazing things to slip away and do something else? It seems almost reckless, almost like, like you know, lack, lacking responsibility and just kind of selfish. Why? Well, because Jesus understood that though he was missing out on the good things, he knew that to do the good things meant that he would have to miss out on the best things. See, in the midst of really, really good things, he would steal time to be in God's presence, to soak in it, to pray and to rest, because he knew that more than anything else on earth, that the best thing in the world was to simply spend time with his Father. There's no other place he'd rather be. 
that no amount of healing and good things would be able to replace the best thing, which is his father and the time that he has with him alone. The thing that I enjoy most about my marriage, more than anything else, are the times that I get to sit on my couch with my wife, Christina, and just sit there and talk. To not have a deadline or wherever it is that we need to go. I love my kids and I love them to death, but even more than them, I love when we, after we put them down to bed at 7 p.m., we have from 7 to whenever it is that we decide to go to sleep of just time to chill out with my wife and just talk to her. Because she's the one, the one in the world, the whole world that knows me best, that loves me best, that accepts me for who I am. It's the place where I feel most whole other than in the presence of God. There's nothing greater than that. Christina will often say to me, she goes, honey, I would want to do all these things, but I don't want to do them if it, if it isn't with you. See, being with the other is the best part. It's the part that is most joyful. So Christina and I, we steal time. We stop doing so many things. We stop checking the phone, etc. That's why we do it. It's why, if you don't know me by now, on Monday, which is my Sabbath, I don't check my phone. Why? Because it is my time with my family and my God, and no one else is going to interrupt it. All of y'all are good, good things, great things in my life. But y'all aren't better than my God and my Father. I think it's why our senior pastor doesn't, have, doesn't even own a phone. If you want to get to him, you've got to find him in his office. And when he's outside that office, you have no idea where in the world he is. Because he ain't got a phone, you can't reach him. I watch a lot of FBI shows. FBI, FBI shows, whenever they want to find somebody, they just track their cell phone. The dude doesn't even have a cell phone, you can't track him. Once he's outside of his office, he could be anywhere in the city, anywhere in the country. And you wouldn't know, because you can't track the man but I think he does it on purpose because he's busy enough as it is. He needs the time to be alone and to enjoy the best thing. Intentionally miss out on stuff so that you can enjoy the best thing. That's a hard thing to ask of you, but you got to flip it around. If you're not intentionally missing out on the good things, then guess what you're missing out on? The best thing, which is worse. The second thing is then single tasking, and we'll look at this more deeply next week, but briefly, Jesus makes it a habit of only doing one thing at a time. Your generation, my generation, loves to multitask even though we suck at it. I haven't yet met a single person in the world who's actually good at multitasking. We say we are, we say our technology helps us, but generally what we end up doing is we're bad at all the things and not ever good at any one thing. But Jesus, wouldn't, it wasn't like that. There's a story in Luke 8, the story of Jairus' uh, dying daughter, right? Jairus is an official and he's got a daughter that is dying, a daughter that is dying. And so he goes to Jesus knowing that Jesus can help her. And so he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you got to help me. My daughter is dying. I know you can do something. If you pray for her, if you go touch her, you'll heal her, right? Will you do so? And Jesus goes, yes. So Jairus is probably like, yeah, like, like this is good, right? So they start walking. And as they're walking, like I said, many people are coming up onto Jesus and they're kind of crowding him and doing things. He's on his way to save a dying girl, okay? And on his way, all of a sudden, a random woman touches his cloak. And it says that in the scripture that his power was like taken from him. Like he, he felt power go from him. Now, I think Jesus has a couple of options in this case, okay? 
Option number one is to figure out who touched him, figure out who kind of violated his personal space and took power from him that he never, uh, you know, agreed to take or to give, right? And then keep on moving. Third, it's just not, you just ignore it, just keep on moving. Or, or the thing that I would do most likely in the situation is I would turn around and say, who touched me? And of course, the woman's like, sorry, it was me. And I'd be like, okay, get up, walk with me because I got to go somewhere. Walk and talk. Let's go, let's go. So tell me what's happening, okay? And then I would just keep on going and I would never stop my movement and just keep walking and talking with this person. Because why? I got places to be. I got things to do. I ain't got time to sit here. But Jesus doesn't do that, if you notice in the story. Do you know what Jesus does? He goes, who touched me? And the whole crowd stops. And literally people are like, um, Jesus, they're like freaking out. They're like, um, the girl is dying. Like, can, can you keep it, keep it moving? And Jesus goes, who touched me? And the lady comes out and she goes, uh, you know, and then he has this conversation with her. And then, <gasps> you know what happens? The girl dies in the midst of the conversation. A servant comes running. The girl is dead. Now, I'm not Jesus. Neither are you. Jesus has power that we all don't have. But I think Jesus understood that if you try to do too many things in life and do so many different things all the time, you're never going to ever do any one thing. You have to learn to single task. Do one thing and enjoy the one thing. It's not, oh, I'm listening to you, pastor. I swear I am. Not because you're offending me, because you are multitasking and you suck at it. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you had a conversation with anyone where your whole attention for the entire duration of the conversation was focused on that one person? When was the last time? Can you think? It's been a long time. Slow down. Single task. And lastly, meditate. Jesus would always steal time to slip away and pray, mostly at daybreak. It's why we have early morning prayer is because Jesus did so. But as he did, again, he would miss out on things and he would only focus on God the Father. But let's be honest. You and I were distracted people. I'm so distracted. Our generation is known to be the most distracted generation of all time. They say that our minds are like a zoo or like the monkey cage at a zoo. So when you walk up to the monkey cage, you see hundreds of monkeys flying all around and doing crazy things. And it's just, you just end this array of movement and sounds and all the kinds. You have no idea who to focus on. But they say our minds are even worse. That our mind is an entire monkey cage full of monkeys running around and doing crazy things. And then one banana gets thrown to the center and that's what our mind is like. Chaos. Frenzy everywhere. But the way that we try to attack it is to constantly stay busy, to constantly fill our time with more stuff, more stuff, and more stuff. Essentially giving monkeys more bananas, but only one at a time, continually. But rather, what I would tell you to do is to take 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, however, throughout the day, in little moments, to sit, to be silent, to be still, and to pray. Now, in the beginning... This is going to be really difficult for you because you've never done it. In the beginning, all you're going to be thinking is all the junk that's floating around in your mind and your heart all the time. It's just going to come, like float to the top. But as you do, ask God, help me to focus. Help me to meditate. Help me to be here with you and only you. Well, now you might be thinking, Pastor, that sounds really good, but why do I got to do this? Because when you do, what ends up happening to your day is that you begin to notice changes. You begin to see, become more aware of God throughout the day. You begin to see beauty where you didn't see before. And you begin to notice things that you didn't before. A pastor out in Vancouver named uh, Ken Shigematsu, he tells a story. He says on one, uh, one Sunday, a friend of his who owned the 50-foot yacht invited him to come out and sail it from the islands off of Vancouver to the main island. And so on Monday morning, he got into a plane and he went over and he got onto his yacht and then he gets there and then his friend goes, hey, 
We got to get this boat. Thanks for helping me, uh, you know, drive my boat back to the island. Uh, but you got two choices. We can either turn the power on and get there quickly if you're running out, if you're short on time, or we can sail and not use the power at all. And then Pastor Ken, he looks at him, he's like, I got, I got all the time in the world today. Today's my day off, and I got, let's do it. Let's, let's sail. So he goes, okay. So then as they start sailing, and as they make their way off the island towards the main, uh, main area, all of a sudden he, sees, he, he, he starts to see all around him as he's paying attention. He sees like trash kind of floating up in the water, and it's like really breaking his heart. But as they get kind of further into like the actual like, you know, part of the, part of the Georgia Strait, he goes, and all of a sudden he says he saw a whale. Whoop. And he's like, and then they went a little further, and he started seeing uh, dolphins and sea otters just kind of popping up out of nowhere. And as they got closer to Vancouver, it was, apparently it was salmon season, so he saw salmon jumping in out of the water, freshwater salmon. And then as he got closer to Vancouver, all of a sudden he started seeing the birds, and the birds came and landed, like hundreds of them came and landed on the boat, on the sail, on the mast, or whatever it's called. And then the, his friend who owns the yacht goes, I've never seen anything like this before. It's got to be because you're a pastor. And he goes, no, that's not what it is. And apparently he goes and he asks the person, he goes, when you sail, do you ever do without power? And he goes, I, part of the way, but generally I'm kind of in a hurry and generally I got places to go. So I've sailed part of it, but then the rest of it I sail uh, on power and then we kind of get to where we need to go. And he goes, maybe that's why. See, people in our society, they say things like, don't blink because you might miss something, right? But I think what we should say to one another is slow down because you're missing things by going too fast. It's why at retreats we say be present and attentive. It's why we don't bring our phones. It's why we have time to sit and to sit by ourselves. It's why we do what we do because as we continue to do so, the garbage gets lifted up in our lives, but we find ourselves just surrounded by a beauty and a power that we weren't really aware of before, but you won't be able to do it until you actually start intentionally missing out, single-tasking, and meditating by slowing down and giving God the time to show you what he wants to show you. I want to finish with a story, and then we're going to close. Oh, we're getting late. It's a story about a mother, a single mother and her son. She's raised a son all her life, and the son grows up and falls in love with the woman, and they get engaged, and then, you know, things get tight finances. So when they get married, he goes, um, mom goes, I know when you get married, you know, you're not going to be able to afford to get an apartment on your own, so you know what, why don't you come and live in my basement suite free of charge, and then, you know, you can, you can live there as long as you need to until you're kind of settled, and then you can move out whenever it is. But the one thing I ask as a condition is that you come and spend time with me at least twice a week, just time with me. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I got, mom, I got you. I love you. So son gets married. First week, he comes up, and apparently they listen. This is an older story. They listen to the radio together. They sit in the living room, they turn the radio on, they just kind of listen to the radio together, and they kind of spend time. Right? And then as time goes, the son gets busy. And so basically as the weeks go, he stops spending time with his mom. But basically gets into the house and goes, hi, mom. And then runs down to the stairs to the basement. And then he pops his head out as he goes, bye, mom. And then he goes and again and again and again. And as time keeps passing, all of a sudden the son is doing this again and again. And sometimes he doesn't even pop his head in. He just goes right where he needs to get to. But mom's birthday is coming up. So what he does, he goes to Macy's or he goes to the store. And then he gets her really, really wonderful and beautiful dress. And so her birthday's there, and finally, rather than just popping in, he goes up and he goes, Mom, I got, a, I got something to give you. Happy birthday. Before I go, I, I wanted to give you this. So then she takes the thing, and then she opens it up, and it's this beautiful dress. But the look on her face is not the best. And she's like, um, by the way, I have the receipt, so if you don't like it, we can, we can return it. And she goes, no, 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 I, I, lo I love it. It's beautiful. And he goes, no, I can clearly tell you don't really like it. We can return it. Like, I don't really mind at all. Like, it's, it's not. And he goes, no, it's beautiful. I, I promise. And he goes, 
No, you're not telling me something. Like, you can be honest. We're close enough. I love you. You love me. I'm your only son. You can be honest with me. What's wrong? So the mom puts down the dress, walks over to her closet, and opens it up, and in there are literally a hundred dresses. And she goes, I have enough dresses, son, to last me the rest of my life. I suppose what I want is not your dress that you're giving me as much as I want you. See, the son was moving too fast. He didn't slow down. He didn't intentionally miss out on other things to spend time with his mother, to single task and focus on her and only her and cherish the times and meditating in her presence to give her his attention and his attention full for time blocks at a time. This story, it continues to haunt me and it continues to convict me all the time because my life is like that. I don't take the time to sit with my God. And the busier I get, the more I'm running around frantically. Right now, it's the busiest season of my life. I have to do three services, back to back, all this kind of stuff. But this past week, I realized I got to slow down. So you know what I did? I went to early morning prayer because it's the only time I can get where I can steal time away just sit and pray and be with Jesus. As if he's saying to me, Pete, I don't want your things. What I want is you. Yeah, he wants me to serve and he wants me to do all these things, but more than that, our God is a God that doesn't want what we do, but wants us. It is Jesus we want. And the constant sea of noise, endless choices, all these things, I think the question is, how do you and I live a life with a rhythm that supports the best thing, which is our relationship with Jesus, rather than sabotaging the very thing that gives us life? Slow down. You're moving too fast. And you're going to miss out on the very thing that is the best thing for you because you're going too fast. I'm going to give you a minute. And we're going to finish out in a couple of songs here. But as we do, can you slow down? The world won't pass you by, though you may think it. But if you keep going at the pace that you're going, you will miss Jesus completely. And then you'll wonder why you went and did all the things that you did and you didn't get much. For those of you going on missions, you might say the same thing to yourself. I went on missions and I did all these things, Pastor, but I didn't really feel like I got anything. Maybe it's because you were too busy thinking about so many other things when the one thing that you need to focus on, even on missions, is God and what he's doing. I'm going to give you a moment to sit to slow down, to reflect, and then we will sing together and respond. So you take a minute.